So welcome. I am James Hanley. I'm a senior policy analyst at the Empire Center for Public Policy. The Empire Center is based here in Albany, and we've been around since uh, 2005. I've been here since December. I'm the, the new guy on board. And we are a nonprofit, uh, nonpartisan policy think tank focused on, uh, we are uh, pro-markets, and we are pro-accountable and transparent government. Uh, you can visit our website at empirecenter.org and uh, view uh, the reports that we put out. The report that I most recently wrote is on your table today. I'll be talking a little bit about that today. So welcome. Uh, I want to extend my deep gratitude to the panelists who will be giving their time to us today. And thank you to everybody who uh, has come to listen. I can't overstate how much I value open and public debate. I spent 20 years as a uh, political scientist teaching politics, public policy, and economics. And I always encouraged my students to challenge their preconceptions, even when they agreed with me, especially when they agreed with me. Uh, when, when students agree with their professor, it's too easy to get into a comfortable rhythm where they don't challenge themselves. So I would often have to step out of my own role and, and challenge students. Uh, but it's important that we hear from various sides of the debate. And it's common today to think that we live in an area of increasing intolerance uh, for debate. And we do see uh, a fair amount of intolerance for listening to uh, opposing sides. But I don't think it's any worse than it has been often in the past. Uh, if we look at our country's history, there have been times when debate was uh, not simply vigorous, but often violent. And today we have a minimum of violence, uh, although we've seen occasional episodes of it, which is very uh, unfortunate. So it's very nice here to have an opportunity to meet today, to listen to people discuss issues, and um, I'm assuming there'll be no incidents of violence today, but uh, good vigorous engagement. The more momentous the policies that are under consideration, the more important it is to have vigorous debate. And there are a few policies, few state policies, more momentous than the uh, Climate Leadership and Community Protection Act, or CLCPA. New York's uh, law is uh, pitched as being the leading, most progressive law in the country. And there is a good argument for that. Uh, Vermont has some pretty aggressive laws. California has some pretty aggressive laws. Uh, but California's uh, CLCPA is right up there with them. So whether we think it goes too far or not far enough, uh, there's general agreement that this is a very aggressive very progressive law pushing uh, policy responses to climate change uh, farther forward than most states have been willing to go. Some people find it heroic, others find it a frightening overreach. Uh, and I, I accept, uh, you know, whatever perspective you have sitting out there, I uh, accept that as a legitimate perspective on it. The overreaching goal of the, the overarching goal of the CLCPA is to reduce New York's greenhouse gas emissions by 85% by 2050 and to have a 100% uh, net zero emissions uh, economy. And that's, that's kind of an amazing uh, goal because uh, it, it encompasses the whole economy, which means overarching changes to just about everything we do in the state. Uh, along the way, we're supposed to reach 70% uh, renewable energy production by 2030. Now, New York has a, a head start on most states in trying to reach that because of hydroelectric power. 
Um, but the rest of that, of course, will be have to meet up with um, uh, uh, wind power and solar power. And that's 2030 is only eight years from now. That's a very, very tight, uh, optimistic time frame. And by 2040, we're supposed to be at 100% emissions-free electricity. Uh, that's only 18 years from now. And uh, I wrote a piece recently for the American Institute of Economic Research in which I compared these types of goals to science fiction movies that are set in the future. That seemed to be a long way in the future when the movie comes out. And then suddenly here we are sitting in 2022 and we realize that, um, oh, <laughs> Blade Runner was supposed to be set in our past. Uh, so we were supposed to have these cyborgs running around, uh, you know, killing us by now. And it hasn't happened. Uh, the future has a way of creeping up on us quickly, and things that seem a long way in the future actually are much, much closer than we realize. Um, you might remember Jurassic Park, the scene where the dinosaur is chasing them, and they show the mirror of the Jeep, and it says objects in the mirror are closer than they appear. Uh, in reality, objects in the windshield are closer than they appear as well. Um, <clears throat> among the targets we have to achieve also are at least 9,000 gigawatts of offshore wind. That's what's in the CLCPA. The Climate Action Council's consultants actually uh, say we need twice as much as that. And since the first windmills aren't supposed to be built until 2024, that works out to about building one mill per week between 2024 and 2050, uh, which uh, might be possible. It's gonna be quite a challenge. And by the time they get those built out, it's gonna be time to start replacing them. Um, and over 6,000 megawatts of solar energy. Uh, the COCPA calls for 3,000. Governor Hochul recently doubled that to 6,000 is the goal. I'm sorry, no. Uh, it calls for 6,000 megawatts of solar energy to 6,000 uh, megawatts of battery storage. That's where Governor Hochul doubled the goal of the COCPA's 3,000. And then 185 trillion BTUs, British thermal units in energy efficiency reductions. Uh, unspecified, but I think mostly supposed to come from uh, the tightening the envelopes of various buildings, which uh, some can be done fairly easily, some it's going to be quite a challenge. So what, how much we can move towards achieving that is, is a little bit of an open question. And along the way, we're going to be increasing, despite these uh, efficiency reductions, we're going to be increasing our electricity usage because we're shifting to electric vehicles with the 2035 electric vehicle mandate. Um, at the same time as we are shifting away from our traditional reliable sources of electricity production. And this is something that no place has done yet. Uh, so this is a big challenge for the state. <laughs> it's a lovely room, but maybe a little bit noisy. Uh, so to say that this timeline is ambitious is uh, an is to say that the timeline is ambitious is an understatement. Um, without casting any aspersions uh, on the end goals, I would suggest that the state's gonna have a very hard time meeting any of these timelines. Uh, does not mean that they can't meet these goals eventually, but meeting them on the deadlines is unlikely. And the reason I'm so pessimistic about that is over a 20 plus year career as an academic studying public policy, particularly environmental policies, I noticed that they tend to almost never be met on time. The standard approach is a deadline is set politically that pays absolutely no attention to the technological capabilities of meeting the goal. And as we get close, 
we realize we're not going to meet it, so it gets pushed back. Still aren't going to meet it, so it gets pushed back again. And by the second or third time it gets pushed back, uh, then finally we have the technology to meet the goals. And I expect that's what will probably happen in the case of New York and the CLCPA. Um, so, I want to talk about the cost of the CLCPA. <clears throat> Excuse me, I've been working on losing my voice for a couple of days, so I need to hang on to it for a couple more hours here. Uh, I noted previously the CLCPA's momentous policy, and uh, just on the basis of cost it is. Uh, the Climate Action Council's analysis says that the CC CLCPA will cost between 200 and 280 and $340 billion. That's $14,000 per New Yorker. Uh, of course, that's over number of years until 2050, but it works out to about $500 per person per year. That is considerably more than most people say they're willing to pay to stop climate change. Surveys show most people are very concerned about climate change, and they're willing to pay something to stop it, but the willingness to pay is around $100 to $200 per year, not $500 per year. Uh, so this is going to run up against people's perceptions at some point, I think, when people start feeling the costs. Um, <clears throat> how much public support will the law retain as people begin feeling the costs? That remains open. Right now, we have the, we've got the easy part of it, where everybody's excited, where we're looking at the end goals, and nobody's felt any costs of it yet. Uh, it hasn't really become effective yet. Of course, it's not all about costs, it has benefits as well. Um, an important part of the benefits is uh, some of these uh, power plants do produce pollutants, not just uh, carbon dioxide, but other pollutants that affect health. And so as if those get shut down, of course, people who live in those neighborhoods are gonna be happy about that, uh, at least the ones who aren't losing their jobs. That's where a lot of the pressure is coming from to shut down natural gas plants is, is from the surrounding communities. So this is part of what makes us politically contentious, right? We need energy, uh, but those who live near these plants don't want them, so there's gonna remain political conflict over that. <clears throat> Moving up a level from those kind of individual costs of the Climate Act, there's a question of the net benefits of it. Um, Anybody who's paid much attention to public policy realizes that public policies don't always have net benefits, even when they're claimed to have. Um, if you work in the private sector and you don't take in more than you spend on something, you end up going out of business, right? Uh, the great thing about politics is we can continue to spend more on something than it's worth and keep it going indefinitely as long as we retain political support for it. Uh, there's no cost benefit, there's no, there's no profit uh, measurement for public policies. And so it's, it's a political choice. And as long as you keep people focused on the benefits and keep them distracted from costs, we can keep things going for a long time sometimes. Of course, to persuade people that it's worthwhile, it helps to have a good cost-benefit analysis. And the CAC, Climate Action Council, uh, does have one. They're, Analysis claims that the $280 to $340 billion cost will be uh, offset by over $400 billion in benefits. All right, who could argue against that, right? Uh, well, I'm skeptical. Um, and I'm skeptical because these multi-billion dollar, multi 
multi-year, multi-decade-old projects are what's known in the business as megaprojects. And there's an iron law of megaprojects, that they tend to be over time, over budget, and under-deliver on the benefits. In fact, they tend to be reliably two to three times over budget. Um, for example, Boston's Big Dig project, some of us are uh, old enough to remember that, uh, was budgeted at $2.8 billion and ended up, ended up costing over $8 billion and was nine years behind schedule. Uh, I think the king of mega project failures uh, was, is the Sydney Opera House. You guys know what that looks like, right? It's, it's an amazing building. It's beautiful. It's the landmark for Sydney. But the original estimate was that it would cost $7 billion and it cost $102 billion and opened a decade late. And I think today in the United States, the biggest uh, mega project boondoggle that's going on currently is California's high-speed rail. Uh, they're supposed to have a two-track high-speed rail system from Los Angeles to San Francisco at a cost of $35 billion. Today, the cost has ballooned to over $100 billion, and they have a single track, and it only runs between two cities in California's Central Valley. Uh, and nobody knows for sure if they'll ever actually complete it. I mean, this is how these projects tend to go. Um, why would we be particularly optimistic about something of the size of the CLCPA? Okay, uh, I might sound a little bit cynical here, but here's the real cynicism. Uh, my, my favorite statement about these types of projects comes from California politician Willie Brown. And I, when I lived in San Francisco for a few years, he was my uh, state legislator. And I actually had the opportunity to see him in, in operation one time in the State Assembly in California where he was the Assembly Speaker. And this guy is a consummate politician. He was phenomenal to watch. And in response to another boondoggle project in San Francisco, he said, in the world of civic projects, the first budget is really just a down payment. If people knew the real cost from the start, nothing would ever be approved. The idea is to get going. Start digging a hole and make it so big that there's no option but to keep filling it with money. All right, now that's cynicism. I don't think the supporters of the CLCPA are that cynical. I think they really sincerely believe in what they're doing. Um, but I think they aren't aware of the potential uh, for the cost to really outweigh the benefits here. If the CLCPA is anything like other medical projects, the actual cost could be well over 500 billion and the benefits could be as low as 200 billion. And that would be a shame. Uh, because as important as climate change is, there would uh, certainly be a better way to approach it. And the money that would be spent that is misdirected on this could be used for other good purposes as well, right? Uh, that's, that's another factor here. It's not just that a particular project might cost more than it's worth. It's that there are other things you cannot do because you're spending money in this one particular area. All right, another uh, aspect of the cost. Even if the Climate Action Council members are right, which I, I don't really think but they are, but if they are, the Climate Action Council is not being entirely forthright with the people of New York. Before every meeting this year of the Climate Action Council, they have said that the benefits to New York outweigh the cost to New York. 
by their own numbers, not my numbers, by their own numbers, this is not true. Um, $260 billion of that $400 plus billion benefit is what they call the, um, I'm sorry, let me get the phrasing right here, uh, the avoided economic damage from pumping carbon dioxide into the air. That is, we take the Department of Environmental Conservation's price on a ton of carbon, multiply it by the number of carbon, uh, tons of carbon that will not be uh, pumped into the atmosphere, and that's the benefit. But by law, that is a global benefit because global warming is a global issue, right? This carbon dioxide doesn't stay right here in New York and cause warming right here in New York. So this is a benefit that leaks out beyond the borders of New York. Now, if New York wants to be, to pay out of pocket to be a leader in climate change and do good for surrounding states and the rest of the world, in a democratic society, we can do that. That's, that in itself is not the problem. The problem is that we're not being told that we are supposed to pay out of pocket for this benefit to everyone else. We're being told that the net benefit is to us here in New York. And that's simply not true. Now, I don't want to say the COC or the Climate Action Council is lying. Uh, we have a representative of the Climate Action Council here today, so I definitely don't want to say the Climate Action Council is lying. Uh, I'm not sure that they've read their own work well enough to understand this, right? Uh, never, never accuse anybody of lying if there's a uh, possibility that they just misunderstand. And so I think perhaps they, they don't understand what they're saying in this, but it bothers me because the benefits to New York by their own numbers are less than the cost to New York. They're also talking about preventing the effects of climate change on New York. That's not going to happen. New York produces about four-tenths of 1% of all global greenhouse gas emissions. We can cut ours to zero, and maybe we should, but we can cut ours to zero, and it's not going to have an effect globally, particularly as China and India and Africa are currently committed to increasing their use of coal for economic development. I mean, look at this room around us. We are a rich, rich country. These other countries want to be as rich as we are. China is developing, wants to be as rich as, as the West. India is developing, still has tremendous amount of poverty. Over 100 million people in India still don't have access to electricity. They want to be as rich as we take for granted. Africa has barely begun to develop in sub-Saharan Africa. Um, over, um, well, there are hundreds of millions of people in Africa that still cook over charcoal, animal dung, there are about half a million premature deaths, yeah, about half a million premature deaths annually in Africa from breathing polluted indoor air because they're cooking over these types of fuels. What do they want in Africa? They want electricity. What's the cheapest way for them to get it? Coal. We're not gonna stop these countries from using coal anytime soon. I mean, if we can find a way to help them leapfrog coal into cleaner fuels like natural gas or nuclear or wind power, whatever it might be, that would be great, but nobody's anticipating that's going to happen. So the amount of global greenhouse gases is going to increase over the next 30 years. 
New York's contribution, even if we should make it, and I'm not saying we shouldn't, is not going to make a difference in climate change. So we're not going to prevent the effects of climate change on New York, not through reducing greenhouse gases. Right? What we can do is work on adaptation. Uh, we have the half billion dollar environmental bond that will help with that if that gets passed by, this, by the people of the state. That's a different approach to it, right? Uh, so we need to be honest about the costs and the benefits for the state of New York. All right, and finally, my other major concern, and this is, thank you, uh, this is in the report that's uh, on your table, is uh, energy reliability. As we are increasing our demand for electricity through the use of electric cars, we are reducing our uh, sources of reliable energy production. NISO has already warned us that reliability are margins, reliability margins, that seems like a hard word to say, uh, are thinning dangerously. They're going to be dangerously thin by 2040. The Climate Action Council has estimated 15 to 25 gigawatts of energy missing by 2040. These are going to be filled by some kind of, uh, need to be filled by some kind of dispatchable energy emissions-free resource that we don't have locked in yet. We saw last year in Texas what happens when you don't have uh, reliable electricity in the winter, right? Uh, Texas's problem was a polar vortex that froze up windmills, froze up the natural gas system because it's not winterized. They had an estimated 200 to 700 people die. Many of them froze to death. Some of them couldn't uh, plug in their life-saving medical equipment at home because the electricity was out. And an estimated $200 billion in property damage. Now, if we think about the cost of the COCPA, nobody's built in the potential cost of property damage or loss of life if we have that similar type of event in New York. But if we are reducing our energy reliability over time, if we get hit with a polar vortex some bitter cold February day in New York in the future, um, we could have a similar type of crisis as they had in Texas. And because we are more uh, tied into a broader electrical grid than in Texas, uh, potentially this spreads more. It could result in not just hundreds, but potentially thousands of lives. So these are the types of things that I think we are not yet taking seriously in addressing our move towards uh, addressing climate change.